Hi, it's Dan here, and I wanted to let you know that this is a very special episode of the show. Some glimpses from my chats with four previous guests. You'll hear about 10 minutes of each guest's 60-plus minute conversation, which will give you a small idea of the many topics that we covered. Also, you can listen to the entire conversation at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Enjoy. Today, I'm very honored to have as my special guest, Miles Goodwin. We'll be talking about music and travels and the ups and downs of being a career entertainer. And we'll get some other insights as well about recording and working on hit albums and, and much more as we get a perspective of the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. And Miles needs no introduction. He's a living legend in the Canadian music scene as lead singer, guitar player, songwriter for the iconic band April Wine. And the radio hits that he wrote and the albums that April Wine put out are an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. I read your book, Cover to Cover. It's called Just Between Me and You. It came out in 2016. And I uh, highly recommend it to my listeners if you if you want to know the history of, of April Wine and, and your life. Like you, you trace your professional and your personal journey. I must say it's it's quite touching in a few spots there. It kind of got me really, really well worth taking the time to read it. So uh, I appreciate how forthcoming you were. And I have more respect for you after reading it. You, you have a kind of a mature sort of self-awareness in the book that re- is reflective and endearing, I think, to people. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, it it was written a while ago now, and, and uh, it was uh, difficult to, to write at times because some of the subject matter was difficult uh, mm-hmm. to, to talk about. You know, the, my mother dying uh, when I was 11 uh, and mm-hmm. uh, and other things, you know, other things. Um, you know, mm-hmm. I'm glad people like it. And it was in, it was a bestseller, uh, the bestseller list of the uh, Toronto Globe and Mail. So, yeah. It was. It took a, no, I can see. took some work, but it was worth it. I can see why, because uh, you know you're sort of peeling back and and the curtain, or pulling back the curtain, I suppose you could say, and just saying, well, here's here's what goes on in this kind of a life, and and of course you bring up the issue of your mom right away, and then you said that you you turned to music. That, that yeah, you, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it inspired me. Uh, well, the music kind of saved me. You know, it's one of those. It's almost a cliche, you know. Some people say, "Well, it was the music saved me." If it was sports that saved me, I was lost, and 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 I somehow was uh, able to manage uh, and get through things. And me, for me, it was music. It's always yeah. been music. Yeah. Um, growing up in the, I guess, the fifties and sixties and seventies, it was a pretty exciting time, right? I mean, you're chasing the rock star dream, and I guess, like like a thousand other kids, you're playing music and and enjoying yourself like at, at what point did you think well i can make something more of this like well that was much music. later in life but i mean I, I you know i was young enough that when the beatles uh you know came out and the british invasion all of that i was in my uh middle teens so uh very impressionable age and so i at that point like so many millions of people around the world musicians decided that we could do more than just uh, cover songs, you know, that we could actually write and perform our own songs. The Beatles were one of the very first artists to do that. Uh, usually, yeah. usually musicians were doing, you know, with the people that wrote the songs, there were the people who produced them, and there were the people that performed them. But the Beatles changed that. I mean, other people were doing it too. I mean, the Beach Boys were doing it too. They were, you know, they were yeah. writing their own songs. But typically, that wasn't the case. So, uh, yeah, that was nice. But I didn't take uh, the idea of doing music professionally did not – occurred to me uh, till much, much later. As I say in the book, I was looking to be in the Air Force and uh, as and I studied mechanical drafting and engineering. 
up in Ontario, then back in Halifax. And then I went to a recruiting office um, in my final year of studies. And it was only then, it sounds weird to say it, but <laughs> only then did I realize that like 90% or 95% of all the kind of work that I would be doing or wanted to do was done by civilians. And mm. I wanted I wanted the uniform and I wanted to travel. So that really discouraged mm. me. And then I have a heart murmur too. That was another issue that came up. And I just okay. I just in 1968 I said the heck with that. I I joined a, a band, a cover band in 1968, and I went down to Cape Breton, mm. and we played there for a year at the most. And then one day down the road came Jim Henman. Uh, and yep. Jim asked me if I wanted to join a band and it was him and his cousins. And the four of us started April wine in, uh, yep. in 1969. So you guys ended up chasing that dream. I love what you say in there about the, the, the name April wine. You've been asked about it. So it doesn't mean anything. Yeah. It's just two words. It's okay, which is great. I appreciate you saying that. Cause I always thought it was a cool name, but you know, it doesn't have to have, well, we didn't, I, I didn't like it. I mean, you know, yeah, that's the whole point. You know, one of the guys in the band decided, you know, came up with the name and that became the name, but. Um, yeah. the idea was that it doesn't mean anything and, and it didn't sound like a rock band, which, you know, I didn't care for that so much. And, and, and the very early days checking at a hotel, they, people would say literally, okay, so where's April wine? We want to, we have to check her in and we say, no, that's us. Oh. We are April wine. And so, oh. um, you know, but April wine's a good name only because we made it a good name. You know, it's only a well, good, that- good name because of the music. As the albums progressed, we became more successful. Uh, the first two were just regional. Uh, Stand Back really was a big leap in terms of Canadian sales and acceptance. Uh, and then, of course, First Glance, which was, I forget when it was, I don't have it in front of me, uh, in the late 70s, First Glance with Roller was the one, finally, that broke us internationally. And, of course, uh, you know, and so forth. But that's how long it took it up from... You know, that first record in 1971 up until 1978, I believe it was, that we released uh, First Glance. All of those early records that we did, you know, I'm not big fans of because we didn't know what we were doing. There was a lot of changes within the band as we kind of moved trying to find find the right combination of people to make the best music. And uh, by that, I mean, you know, Jim Henman left after the first album. David and Richard Henman left basically after the second album. In came mm-hmm. Gary, Jerry Mercer, the drummer, the iconic drummer. And Gary Moffat came in. And this was around Electric Jewels. So, you know, as you know, and, and even still, I wasn't really happy with our recordings because, you know, while we were doing was these little two and a half minute songs that you like and people like, but that's not what I wanted. Yeah. And then we did, finally, we did an album for the first time in our lives in 1975. I produced Stand Back. And that just all of a sudden, you know, we, we, we went from, you know, a few records to, you know, shipping platinum. It was, that was a yeah. big breakthrough. And uh, Jim Clench was in the band at that time on bass. And he wrote Ooh, What a Night, that's, I believe, is on that record. Awesome. And, uh, yeah. you know, and so, yeah, it progressed. But musically, you know, in terms of learning, the craft was just doing it. And, and then eventually I started co-producing a few things, especially with, um, uh, with Mike Stone um, up around Nature of the Beast. Uh, that was that was that there was a lot to learn there because this man was very successful with Queen and 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 right. loved Queen yeah. records. So yeah, it's a progression. I'm still learning. I'm in the studio all the time. Yeah. You know, I yeah. I started blues doing blues records two or three years ago, 
and Miles Goodwin Friends of the Blues, and then Miles Goodwin Friends of the Blues too. Yeah. Not first one was nominated for a Juno for Blues Album of the Year, uh, won the East Coast Music Award for Blues Album of the Year, and as did the next one. They were very successful internationally, not just in the U.S. and Canada, but also overseas. So um, you know, I, I learn all the time, um, and that's what I love about music. And I've always called it the studios like making making history, and and I continue to try and make history under my own terms now. And uh, which will include a new April Wine album, I hope, around the around the new year sometime. You ended up producing other bands too, because you produced an album for Tease. Yeah, I didn't do much, hardly at all. I wasn't really interested. I did the one with Tease, One Night Stands. That was that was fun. We're still friends. Good. Um, I didn't do much more than that. I did. Okay. Um, I did a country record with a fellow named Julian Austin. I did a a couple of other little projects, but I was so busy with April Wine that I didn't really have the time because uh, as soon as we were off there, we'd record a record, go on the road, and then I'd have to write another record and produce the yeah. record and get on the road and, and, the, and on and on and on. Yeah. But I didn't produce many other people, just uh, just myself, uh, April Wine and more recently myself. Yeah. Okay. No, I was curious about that because uh, I, I wonder when you look at the timeline, I mean, when you look back on that now, it must have been just a continuous blur of like this and this and this and the next day you said in the book you did 10 albums between 73 and 84 or you did what was it 13 albums i think you said 11 studio albums and two live albums yeah it's a lot of work you know uh yeah. but i mean I, I i love recording I mean, that's what i that's what i i continue to write and record and that's what i live for i mean my life is very very busy now even during uh, the pandemic i was able to continue writing and recording which is what i love for me, the writing, the continual recording and writing is, is just what I do. It is another blues, again, maple wine. Yeah, yeah, it keeps me busy. My special guest, Rick Emmett, guitarist and vocalist for the iconic Canadian band Triumph. Uh, Rick's contributions to the music world are legendary, and he's an essential part of the Canadian musical landscape. So we'll be talking about recording and working on hit albums and the business part of the biz and, and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. The 60s yeah. to me was this time period of, and, and I mean, you know, you, you don't have to do much research to find out that there was a blossoming on a whole bunch of levels, not the least of which was the technology of making records and multi-tracking. And so all of these young bands were getting the opportunity to go into the studio and start to do things that you'd never really had the chance to do before. So, yes. you know, all those, like, I mean, the Beatles obviously was the, was the kind of beginning of something, but... I mean, I look at my life and 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 the the rise of bands like Led Zeppelin and and the kinds of records that they were making and Steely Dan and Pink Floyd and you know there was an album coming out every week that somewhere that was just something that was gonna you know it's kind of in a way change the world. Go sort of five ten years back down and, and you find Tam uh, like Motown and and yep. uh, the stuff that was coming out of Memphis and and on Stax Volt and on, and those kinds of things and of course in my high school we uh, there was a guy that I had played bass in our band his name was Rick Wiedich and uh, Rick had a basement that um, it was full of all of these old records like we were starting to listen to things like, you know, Jeff Beck playing in the Yardbirds. And then he would mm. say, yeah, but, you know, where did Jeff Beck get this stuff? And he would pull out, you know, old Muddy Waters records and, and Lightning, Tom Hopkins, and, you know, just this stuff, right. Robert Johnson. And 
So that was where guys like Clapton and Beck and Page had, had got their inspiration. And so I was kind of lucky that, mm. that I'd got that exposure to that kind of vinyl at that point in my life. I was a left-handed guy that we'd already been doing things like uh, in my friend's garage, he had a little Seabreeze player and we would put on the records and we'd have tennis rackets and we would be sort of pretending that we were strumming and I would strum it like McCartney backwards, you know? Oh. And yeah. Uh, yeah, then I got some guitar lessons and, and uh, the guy turned it around on my lap and said, no, 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 your, your left hand should be on the fretboard. You're going to get a huge advantage that way. And it's true that it kind of took off. Well, it's so funny because I had the exact same experience. I'm left-handed in every respect, but I play guitar right-handed. And I remember talking to the guy and I was seven years old and he said, well, that's right-handed. I said, well, how do you figure that? Yeah. My left hand should be on the fretboard. So I play exactly the same way. Well, that's good for as you. Well like, as you do, but <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, in my case, uh, I have it's not ambidextrous, but I have this. It's dextrosinistral. So, in other words, right. things of uh, fine motor control, I do with my right hand. So, I, I sign my name. I I use a fork with my right hand, but uh, hmm. gross motor control, things like hammering a nail, throwing a baseball, I do it with my left hand. I'm dextrosinistral, right. which is a weird thing. As a teenager. I could still sing really, really high. And, uh, yeah. you know, so I got into bands. And, I mean, I have a funny story about we did a bunch of dates with Journey. And Steve Perry is, you know, a fantastic singer and, and uh, mm -hmm. fronting this band. And he had a pretty high voice. But, I, you know, we opened at the Rose Bowl. And when I came off stage and was talking to him, he goes, are you hitting like high Bs all the time in those songs? He goes, are you hitting a high E in one of those tunes? I go, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. He goes, Oh my yep. God, that's inhuman. <laughs> and so it's kind of funny to have a guy that's, you know, known for being such a great high singer that he would be, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's funny. But uh, you know, that's, a, that's true because uh, singing those high notes and then being able to sustain them too. And that's the thing about Steve Perry and, and yourself as well, you know, going up there once in a while is one thing, but singing songs that are A's and B's and then sustaining a high E is, is really, really rare. I mean, there's almost nobody can do that. Right well, now. you know, yes and no. I mean, th there was a time where uh, high singers, it obviously became, <clears throat> part of it is because in a rock band, a high voice cuts. You know, so mm -hmm. some of my favorite bands, Led Zeppelin, Robert Plant was singing up there. Uh, John Anderson of Yes was singing really, yes. really yeah. high, you know. Um, yeah. And then there were the, the, the gaggle of sort of uh, American guys, Perry, Lou Graham of Foreigner, uh, Mickey Thomas, uh, who sang on a, uh, an Elvin Bishop record in the early days, fooled around and fell in love, but then ended up in Starship yeah. later on. But they were all high singers they could really uh, kind of cut through, you know? So it was yeah. a fairly standard thing. Tommy Shaw's a pal of mine. He's in sticks and he yeah. had a kind of a That's high cool. voice that could cut, you know? So yeah. it, it, it wasn't like uh, I was a complete anomaly, but um, <laughs> I think I maybe did sing some of the higher notes. That, yeah. <laughs> and, I, I would those say. other guys and they go like, eh, how did yeah. he do that night after night? Of course, you got to remember in Triumph, Gilmour sang half the material. So I really only ever had to sing no. half a set a night. These other guys we were talking no. about, when you're a lead singer and the band, you sing everything, you know? So, I mean, yeah. by the, by the time I got into my sort of fifties, mm -hmm. I had moved the keys of songs down and I would detune my guitar yeah. a half a step. And, you know, like a song, like fight the good fight that was, you know, originally done in concert D minor, 
it was now in yeah. you know B minor with the guitar to do right. tuned down a half step. So, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's just, that's just the way life works. Right. Yeah. Well, th that's cool. And so for you, it was an exciting time, obviously, but like a thousand other kids that played in bands and stuff, when did you decide that you could actually make a living? Like, was there a defining moment for you when you thought, you know, I can make a living out of this? Uh, well, it came in stages. I mean, I, when I was in right. high school, I really wanted, I was a jock and I really loved sports yeah. and I was hoping, you know, I wasn't thinking so far ahead. I was only thinking about, you know, I want to play in the football game, but I tore my knee up in senior football when I was 17 and it mm. was a pretty bad injury. And it, then there was just, I couldn't run as fast as I used to. And, uh, so that sort of ended that. And, but I'd always been playing guitar and being in bands and music was always this kind of option thing that existed. And so at around the age of 17, and that would have been around 1971, 70, 71, I kind of said, okay, I'm going to get serious about this. And I was still in high school, got my union card, got a Fender amp and a Telecaster, and I started jobbing. Yeah. I was playing in wedding and bar mitzvah bands. And uh, because I could sing and play guitar, I, I could get work, yeah. you know, played yeah. in a country and Western band three nights a week for a while. You know, cool. 60 bucks a week when you're in high school, that's a lot of money, you know. <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. And and the experience you get too, like, like Neil Sean said that about him, you know, he, he'd go and play with anybody like Dominic Triano, same, like anybody who he could learn something from or play with. And you'd, you gather all those experiences up and you put them forward later. I think that's true. I mean, especially because of, of the eclectic nature of the music from the 60s into the 70s. Like when Triumph would go into the studio, I could make a record where I had a classical guitar piece. I played some blues. Uh, you yeah. know, you could even progressive rock kind of. Uh, the straight ahead rock was almost like the easiest thing for me to do. Um, hmm. But uh, yeah, I'd had all of that um, exposure to uh, playing standards and and uh, middle of the road kind of ballads and 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 pop. And that really gives you a, a, a strong sense of, um, you know, what's good, like not not just like yeah. not just what's fashionable or what speaks to uh, hormones, but you know what 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 makes for a really good song. And and, and at the basis of everything, I think uh, the, the the strength that I had was as a songwriter. You know, in the final yeah. analysis, over time, it's the songs that seem to last. And the, the, you know, fancy guitar playing, virtuoso stuff, yes, you know. And as my guitar playing has evolved later in life and I go more towards the jazz end of things, well, there's less and less audience for that all the time because <laughs> yeah. people are not really interested in how complex it, it, it might, the har harmony might right. get. You know, people are still driven by melody and, and that's what they relate to. And all of that exposure in, in you know, MOR kinds of uh, bands, it, it stood me in good stead. When I joined Triumph, uh, the other two guys, they had the vision of that band and they knew what it, they wanted it to be. And I, was, I wasn't the leader of Triumph. Gilmore, the drummer, it was his band. And uh, yeah. it was sort of built in his, in his fashion, you know, uh, to, to be a big spectacle with a big show and, and theatrical and lots of production and um <laughs> yeah. and the other guys they gravitated yeah towards the whole thing of a power trio that would you know we get fists pumping in the air i mean i was happy to do it I, I, and i was yeah. pretty good at it you know like i i fit into the role 
comfortably. Yeah. But I mean, if I could have had my druthers, then if I got a choice, I think I would have probably picked a to be in a in a prog band as opposed to, you know, something that was a little more towards. I probably would have been a a pig in muck if I could have been in a band like Steely Dan. You know, there, yeah. there's never been a Canadian band that was kind of like a Steely Dan. Dan Hill is perhaps best known for his worldwide hit song, Sometimes When We Touch, but he's done much more than that in his life as well as a songwriter and a performer, producer, and a writer, all of which we'll get into in our conversation. I was born in Toronto in 1954, and I've been all over the world, you know, you know, made lots of albums in L.A., lots of writing and producing for other artists in L.A., in New York, yeah. uh, in Nashville, and uh, obviously in Stockholm, which is probably one of the biggest uh, centers for, for brilliant uh, hit singers, uh, songwriters, songwriters and producers. So those are the cities I've basically been in as a songwriter producer, though naturally as an artist, I've been virtually everywhere. When I've made, recorded albums like my uh, so-called comeback album with the uh, Can't We Try, I Never Thought Carmelia, you know, I recorded the entire album in, in uh, mm -hmm. Los Angeles, or to be more specific, uh, Marina del Rey, Santa Monica. So I would be there for eight months. You know, often I would be working in LA, okay. uh, writing back in the seventies when I, you know, my first record came out in 73 on RCA. So I've basically been doing this for pretty much professionally. I mean, for pretty much 50 years. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. so back when I was starting, Dan, there wasn't the level of, uh, songwriters, uh, producers, uh, you know, uh, in, in Canada, we just didn't have those kind of epic songwriters. So I had to leave Toronto in order to write with, with people that were my, my, my equal. They just didn't exist in Canada, 75, 85, you know, 95. Uh, that all changed, of course, in the last 10 years with artists like uh, Drake of The Weeknd and Sean Desmond and, and uh, Justin Bieber. But that was not available. There, there were no artists, uh, songwriters at that level when I started banging out records, you know, from 73 on. If I wanted to have hit records, Dan, I had to get out of Toronto and either get to L.A., Nashville, New York, or Stockholm. I love these other cities. And for me, they're all, it is, it's also fresh, you know. I think for all of us, Dan, it's healthy yeah. sometimes for us to get out of our so-called comfort zone, you know. And so it's always been wonderful for me to, to fly to all these, these great uh, songwriting producing uh, centers. Uh, and it's probably fresh for me because I don't live there. Oh, good point. You were at the time with, you know, Brad and America and Gordon Lightfoot and Joni Mitchell. I think Ian Thomas was coming up at that time and Murray McLaughlin, of course, Bruce Coburn. I mean, it was a pretty exciting time for music and especially the genre of music that you were doing. There's so many factors that go into being a huge success in the music business. As you know, uh, uh, Jay-Z said, and he's right, that it's 10 times harder to make it in the music business than to become an NBA player. But part of that is timing, and absolutely, you're so right. It was the t it was the explosion of the singer songwriter, you know, come say 1970. You know, mm -hmm. so it was absolutely the perfect time for me to come out, you know, as a professional. 
a recording artist in, in 73, you know, and you probably did the same thing, Dan, but I, my homework was to, to study these performers. I saw everybody, Cat Stevens, Billy Joel, Jackson Brown, yep. Bonnie Raitt, Gordon Lightfoot, Bruce Coburn, Murray McLaughlin. Uh, you know, I, I saw all these shows and I inhaled them and I studied and I learned. So it was the explosion of the singer songwriter. And I was at every show starting from when I was uh, 12. Back when I was growing up, you know, guys weren't supposed to like bread, right? <laughs> we, were, we were supposed to like Led Zeppelin and the Rolling Stones, for example, or, or the Who. I love Led Zeppelin, except when they were stealing black songs. Um, <laughs> I, I love the Stones. I, I love the Who sometimes, but I, I also love bread. So there was not yes. one guy in my high school that would admit to loving bread. I said, whatever. You can call me a wimp. I don't care. I love bread. You know, I love James Taylor. You know, I didn't really go into that kind of, those really uh, those stultifying roles of what a what a male should be listened to and not be. I, I was impervious to that. As a musician, I listened to everything. I loved Cat Stevens, and I, and I loved you know Deep Purple. I mean, we listened yeah. to everything. But I think that was good. We had a big a wide palette, right? Well, yeah, that's true, Dad. And the other thing is that music wasn't so much uh, sectionalized back then, back in that mm. day. So, you know, a station like Chow My Fam would be playing virtually everything, right? Whereas now it is more uh, sectionalized and, and polarized. So, you know, we got the urban stations in America, which is of course code for the black stations. And so mm. unless you're a crossover artist, black artists are on the black stations, you know? Uh, you know, the rockers are on these, these, these rock stations or AOL stations or classic rock. And then, the ballad or the softer singers on this this on adult adult contemporary, and then if they go right up the adult contemporary charts, then they can cross over into the Billboard Hot 100. But when we were growing up, that was not the case. So you know they were playing everything on one station. Back back. Well, in that. yeah, and especially as musicians, we love all music. We love everybody. Well, so, yeah, I mean, Quincy good is good is good. Yeah, that's what Quincy Jones says. He says we got to stop in this kind of you know, sectioning off and parceling off, yeah. partitioning off this music genre versus an, another, you know, I cross every genre, you know, yeah, black doesn't mean I'm just a so-called urban artist. And then, so you got involved again, looking at the timelines. So you got a, a record deal with RCA, but you were barely 20 years old. You were was, a teenager. I was 19. I got the deal. Yeah. 1973. So I was 19 when I got that deal. Cleo Lane, the brilliant black uh, uh, yep. guy singer from London, England, had already cut my song, See to Music, right? Uh, Harry Belafonte had already flown me into New York because he wanted to cut my song, You Make Me Want to Be, and another song I'd written called, I Think It's Time I Close My Eyes. And Jose Fliano, who was also an RCA artist, uh, we met, I met him at kind of an RCA party, and I played him See to Music. He wanted to cut See to Music, and he wanted mm -hmm. me to fly to L.A. And, and, and sign to his publishing company. And, and, and be managed by me. So even at the age of 19, before I had any records out, I was already starting to rock it as a songwriter. Interestingly enough, Dan, only black entertainers at that time. When we were growing up, there weren't these TV shows like America's Got Talent or The Mask. So to tell someone in, in, in 19, because I'd already decided, you know, say, I was already, everyone knew by the time it was 1966, 67, this was going to be my job, but they thought mm -hmm. you're you nuts. There's literally <laughs> no precedent at that time growing up in Don Mill 
for someone wanting to be this. You know, they just thought it, for you to say you wanted to be a professional recording musician, songwriter, performer was akin to saying, okay, I think I'm going to be a circus performer. It shot yeah. out of a cannon. They just thought, they just thought it was crazy. So what gets me about your music, like that really gets you in the feels, as they say, right? And you got the acoustic guitar and it's so evocative and emotional. And then you got these deep themes about life and like, you don't write party music, right? You write uh, evocative well, songs. Well, I, I, I have written party music, you know, you know, but obviously uh, you can't span genres as a singer the way you can as a songwriter producer. So Yes, I've written probably about seven, eight huge American country hit singles, but obviously I'm not a country singer. Uh, I have yeah. written successful dance hits, uh, which are, I guess are party hits. But again, as a songwriter, I'll, you know, I don't see this happening as an artist. So certainly sometimes when we touch has been a smash as a dance hit. Uh, Into the Night uh, was a smash as a dance hit. But yeah, so Dan Hill, the so-called artist, is not a a party uh, artist, but as a, as a songwriter, Hey, I've written Christian songs that have done well. Yeah. I think one of the keys to being a, a professionally creative person is to not really analyze too much what you're doing, what works, what doesn't work. You just do it right. The minute you start thinking about it, then, it, then you get too calculated and contrived and everything falls off. The wheels fall off the bus. So, but absolutely. I mean, when I was into Bruce Coburn starting at the age of 15, when he actually came to my high school and performed oh, to my English class before his first album was even out. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, with, with, with Bruce Coburn, who is a, a genius uh, songwriter. Um, yeah. He, you know, he, he, he would demand a lot from, from the listener, you know, because his songs were not like formulaic and with these yeah. catchy choruses, like say uh, afternoon delight, you know? So yeah, that being said, yeah. Artists like that did demand a lot from, from a listener, but in the same way that some books demand more from the reader than other books. But, you know, again, I, I mean, I love all kinds of music, you know, you know uh, whether it's like a, a hundred years ago or, or today, as long as the songwriting is good. Today, I'm very honored to have as my guest, the legendary Rolf Henneman. We'll be talking about life in music business, traveling, working on major albums, and much more as we get a perspective about the Canadian music scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Rolf has engineered and or produced some of the most iconic classic albums in Canadian history, so I'm thrilled that he's here to share some of his experiences with us. So thanks for joining me today, Rolf. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. How about yourself? Well, I'm doing just fine. And this is a big thrill for me because, uh, as I said in my intro, you've you've worked on some of the most iconic Canadian albums and ones that really meant a lot to me, you know, growing up in the 60s and 70s. And, and, and a lot of those iconic albums hit when I was in my teen years. And so that they stay with you, as you well know. They do. That's what, what it's all about, isn't it? Absolutely. I, I remember being a kid. And listening to the Rolling Stones and everything, I was lucky that my my father uh, actually was into rock and roll. He sort of missed oh. his childhood. Uh, we, hmm. we immigrated from Germany uh, in okay. 1965. And so, you know, his age group, he, he grew up in Germany under the Hitler Youth, and then he was drafted and had to go fight in the war and that sort oh, of wow. thing. So he missed all those formative years. And so in the 50s, uh, in, in Germany, we managed to get uh, a British Forces Broadcasting Service because we lived in the uh, British sector. And okay. late at night, we could also get the American 
the uh, AFN, I think it's called, American Forces Network. So all of a sudden he heard Buddy Holly and, uh, you know, people like that. And yeah. uh, he, he got into rock and roll and he was the first one in our family to buy rock and roll records on 45s. In 71, 72, I went back to Germany because I had partly grown up there. I was 15 when we came here. And so I wanted to know, okay, where do I want to be a grown-up? Where do I want to work for a living? So I went back to Germany to find out. And that was probably the a more depressing thing than anything else. I just wanted to come back home, which was over here. A year and a half later, I came back. And I thought, okay, what do I want to do? And one of the songs that got me thinking about music that I heard on the American Forces Network in Berlin was Lonesome Mary by Chilliwack. And I thought, hey, I saw those guys, you know, at the whatever love-in there was out in Cloverdale or, or wherever it was out in the valley. I thought, well, it might be fun to uh, do something like that. So I made an appointment to see the chief engineer at Canbase Studios. And uh, he didn't really want to see me kept me waiting for four hours while he was doing a session, but I, I kept hanging around in the lobby and he finally came out and he only asked, do you know anything about music? And I said, no. And then he said, do you know anything about electronics? And I said, no. And he, he said, you'll never make it. This was Mike Flicker. And so I said, well, let me be a gopher. You know, I'll, I'll do coffee and whatever. I just want to see how it works. And the staff engineer, Keith Steen, walked in and Mike said, Keith, this guy wants to be your assistant. Do you want an assistant? And Keith said, I don't care. Okay, fine. And so I, I became a gopher without being paid wow. or anything. I said to yeah. Keith, when is your next session? He said, well, go find out yourself. That's, that's how helpful he was. And the receptionist, wow. who, whom I had gotten to know quite well in the meantime, in the four hours, she said, I'll phone you when he has a session. Just be here an hour early, help him set up. And, and that's how it started. Wow. Yeah, I, wow. I did that for four or five months, something like that, sleeping on my parents' yeah. sofa. And, uh, you know, then just doing sessions with Keith. And then yeah. the, uh, the, the paid assistant that they had, uh, he got sick. So I had to do a couple of sessions with Mike Flicker. And... Mm -hmm. uh, all of a sudden, I found myself, they, they applied for a uh, government grant for a job on the training. I got paid $400 a month, and all of a sudden, I was their assistant engineer for both of them, and the other guy was gone. <laughs> so, you <know>. Wow. <laughs> well, the other interesting thing when I was reading through your, your history and stuff is like you were involved in like a really wide range of musical styles. So so in a sense, it might might have been a blessing that the fact that you were just sort of on the outskirts and just kind of, you could see the whole landscape because you did everything from folk to hard rock to country to pop and jazz, whatever, right? Uh, whoever paid me the money, I went. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but no, I mean, that's the bottom line. But also the reality is I had to learn about those things, you know, and okay. one of the uh, early things that I, I learned about was jazz because Paul Horn was signed to the Can Bass label, and he he was okay. a world famous flute player, you know. So, yes. uh, and so we did an album with him that I assisted on with Flicker, and mm -hmm. I found that 
the really serious jazz, it gave me anxiety attacks. I couldn't handle it. It was so far beyond me musically that I couldn't relate, you know? So, but but Chris Barber type Dixieland jazz, I loved it, still do. You did other stuff too. You did lots of jingles and and movie soundtracks. You just do whatever comes in, right? So today we're doing Paul Horn and he's got his flute and we're going to set up and we're going to do it. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I did the jingles and everything because the ad agencies, they uh, they would hire the studio and they yeah. do, you know, they'd spend the morning doing the jingle. Afternoon, we mixed it. That was it, right? And so, yeah, I had to learn to work fast and whatever they threw at us, whatever musical style they were using, whatever, they, they usually had the same core players and singers. But yeah, I did same thing with movie soundtracks. You know, they just come in and they, they have a producer, they have an arranger and you just set up and, you're just the guy that pushes the button. When you're dealing with musicians or any kind of artist, uh, you have to have patience because they're the creative ones more so, at least in my case, they were more creative than I was. My talent was putting it together for them. And mm-hmm. so th- when you're recording somebody, or you know, whether it's production or, or you're engineering, uh, you have to be patient. You can't push them around and you have to be easygoing. You can't get overly intense. I found that a lot of artists, not all of them, but a lot of artists deep down are a little bit insecure and sometimes they need you to hold their hand. Sometimes Mm -hmm. they need a little bit of a challenge and you have to be a bit of a psychologist and say, okay, uh, we're not getting anywhere. How do I approach this? How How do I get it done? And whether you call right. for a break or you say, you know, let's go have some coffee and talk about it, or you throw a challenge at them, let's see you hit that note, you know, yeah. and that sort of thing. Uh, so you just have to play it. Well, you had lots of different experiences. So you worked on some of my favorite albums ever and, and as an engineer and a producer, but you worked with other producers, right? You worked with, with Mike Flicker. You mentioned yeah. him already a couple yeah. of times and he produced the heart stuff, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the yeah. irony with Mike Flicker is he was the one who told me that I'd never make it. And hmm. about 1982, he called me up in the middle of the night and he said, Rolf, how would you like to come down to LA and work with me? So I ended up going down and working with him for just over two years and wow. did some pro- did some projects there with him with Al Stewart and Randy Meisner from the Eagles and that yeah. sort of thing. And so, and I was thinking, Okay, he he didn't think I would make it. Obviously, I did. But why is he calling me now with all the hot shots in in LA? You know, yeah. but we, but we had also built a working relationship. You know, with all the stuff that we had done, he knew how I worked. He knew what I could do for him, and that I yeah. could actually be a production assistant, which I became. That I did a lot of sessions for him, like with Al Stewart you know, on those projects yeah. and that sort of thing, where. I was with the musicians, we were doing overdubs and Mike would come in every couple of days and say, yeah, I like that. I don't like that. Redo it and blah, blah, blah. Right. So. Interesting. Well, that must've been a wild time for you. I mean, exciting. You're, you're right at the heart of things in LA with the, there's a lot of buzz around that time too, right? The early eighties. Oh yeah. No, it was, it was, it was a great experience, but I must admit, uh, I, I was also glad not to be working there because when, when Michael wasn't getting that many projects anymore and i thought okay i can lend my you know 
I can be hired by other people. I can, you know, try to get other jobs. And I thought, I don't really like living in LA. You know, the, mm-hmm. the whole hype of the place, I, I didn't enjoy it. Uh, and it was really noticeable in studios when you brought a project to them, they treated you like a king. You know, they wined and dined you uh, because you brought yeah. them business. But when you didn't have anything to bring them, they didn't say hello. You know, so, you know, so I I really didn't like it. Thanks for checking out these short bits from my much longer conversations with previous Liner Notes guests. Don't forget you can listen to each full interview at either linernotes.ca or on any podcast platforms. Just search for Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. Until next time, I'm Dan Harris.